So welcome to the Passel CMO Series podcast, where we discuss all things marketing and business development in the world of professional services. Now, marketers and business development professionals are crucial to a law firm's strategy, yet for many, the way firms set their strategic direction remains rather a mystery. However, today, I'm excited to be joined on the CMO Series by the wonderful Bree Leung, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at Much Shellis, to discuss the role of Chief Strategy Officer and the process for setting and executing effective strategy for a firm. So this is the first for us, which is very exciting. Bree, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely thrilled. I know we've uh, been waiting to get this one in the diary for a little while. So absolutely right. thrilled that you can you can be here and excited to do this. And um, yeah, it sounds like you've uh, you've been very busy with work. And obviously, you know, Halloween's just been and it sounds like that's your your, your favorite time of the year as well. Right, right. And now here we are in November. Exactly. Happy we're doing this. Exactly. No, excited to get into it. So um, I guess kind of to start us off, I would love it if you could please um, give us a little bit of a sort of summary and, you know, how does that law firm strategy happen? I, I love this opening question, Ali. So um, the first thing that comes to mind is blood, sweat and tears. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I think, um, you know, not to oversimplify, but law firm strategy starts when, frankly, the people leading the firm decide that they need one, that they need a strategy. Um, typically, what I've seen is that that discovery happens when there is either a perceived uh, threat to the status quo or um, there's a real ambition for growth. And sometimes it's one and the same, sort of that old adage of we're not, if we're not growing, we're dying. Um, but once the leaders then decide a strategy is needed, then you'll see decisions get made about what kind of strategy. Is it specifically an M&A strategy or a strategy around long-term organic growth or something about competitive positioning, for example? Um, and then they also need to decide how is the firm going to navigate the process of building that strategy? Are they going to hire a consultant or will they handle it all in-house? Is there going to be a special committee, et cetera, et cetera? And in my experience, the strategic planning process, frankly, looks pretty much the same regardless of who's facilitating it. Um, in a nutshell, it begins with a discovery process that typically includes market research, firm financial and client analysis, stakeholder engagement. And then from there, a strategic vision or an overall direction is formed and a committee designs a plan that achieves that vision within a certain time period. Um, and then that plan gets rolled out to the firm through a, a lot of communication and buy-in building and all of the things that you would expect. So that's really, you know, in the most simplistic uh, way I can describe it, how a law firm strategy happens. It really starts with the people in charge deciding that the firm needs a plan for change. No, thank you very much. I mean, blood, sweat and tears is no better summary of it, um, I guess, in terms of the reality. But no, that's a, that's a really lovely opening for us to to get a nice overview. And as we go through, this, it's going to be so good to kind of just del delve deeper into it. Um, and kind of with that in mind, I know you're talking about the different approaches people might have. It might be they bring in a consultant, they go in-house. You know, when we start to think about yourself, how did you come to be in that role as a chief strategy officer? Um, and when did you realize that uh, this was something that you could really add value to at a firm? Hmm. Yeah, so I actually, I, I was uh, a consultant, and that is how I came into this. When I first met Much, um, I was working as a principal consultant for a company called Growth Play. Um, I imagine many of the listeners here are familiar with Growth Play, and Deb Knopp, who's um, one of the founders of that 
of that company, she's a good friend and mentor, she had brought me in to work with her on Much's five-year strategic growth plan back in like 2017. So, um, so that's how I really got introduced to the firm. I was already doing this kind of work, um, but on the outside um, for, for many firms. And then a few years later, Much brought me in-house and um, I was really excited about the idea because really for the first time I was going to get to not only work with the firm to design their next five-year strategic plan again, but this way I could also really see it all the way through implementation. And that's something that a consultant rarely gets to do. You know, we tend to as consultants come in, design, facilitate, help them launch it, and then it's just sort of a check-in. So how are things going? And you sort of have, have no control over, you know, what really happens. And, um, and, and it always feels just a little bit, you know, un, uh, unfinished. So, um, so that's how I got to know much. My background is in marketing, business development, and and strategic growth, and and both outside of legal um, and and certainly inside of legal. So, I've always enjoyed that strategic plan building process. I like facilitating groups to solve problem and, and problems and design for the future, and and do research and think innovatively. Um, so that's really part of my wiring. And there really aren't many of us chief strategy officers in law firms around. I I think it's a relatively new position. Um, and I think we're those of us in the position uh, are really still kind of defining it as we go. But I'm I'm really proud of uh, much for seeing the potential in having an in-house CSO who can drive strategic value and progress really on a daily basis. And we're a smaller firm. We only have about 100 lawyers or so. And given that size, I feel like my work and that value you're asking about, how do I, you know, how did I know I could add real value? Um, given that size and, and the work that I'm doing day in and day out, I really do see it making a meaningful difference for the people who work here. So that's really fulfilling for me. Yeah, I can imagine. I know we're going to kind of get into this and go a little bit deeper, but just a few of those threads that you're talking about now, I mean, it'd be interesting to understand a bit more on your thoughts. You mentioned that, you know, that CSO role is not something that's actually that common. I know from when we spoke yeah. previously, you know, you've now got your, your CMO, Alison, who's doing a fantastic job and how much you enjoy mm -hmm. that sort of her. I, I guess kind of um, a question for you around that is just, do you see more chief strategy officers coming to the forefront within law firms because it really does give you the opportunity to sit in the cockpit and drive everything forward with you know the firm's you know managing committee um or do you think that actually that still lays on the cmo i mean it'd be interesting to kind of understand your thoughts there yeah i think that it's a great question and it's interesting to see how this kind of evolves i do think there are a number of cmos uh, and cmbdos out there who very much serve in the role of chief strategy officer while also um, running the marketing um, or business development operations of the firm. Uh, they are very closely tied. What, what I, what, how we're defining chief strategy officer anyways, and, and how I think a number of CMOs who have that seat at the table um, are, are able to you know, make things happen and, and, and create real value on the strategic side. But I also think that there are probably just as many CMOs, CMBDOs, directors of marketing out there who feel like they have a lot to offer in the strategic space and don't get that entree 
into the room, if you will, um, where marketing is still heavily based on marketing. The, the, the job function of marketing is still heavily based on marketing communications and awards and accolades and, and things like that, um, events. And while those are all incredibly important and take absolute talent and focus uh, to do and to do well, um, a lot of I think a lot of firms and sort of, you know, the proverbial boardroom doesn't see that same person who leads that as being um, the same person who would lead the firm's strategic growth. And and I think that's a miss. I, I, th I think that there's a real opportunity um, for those who um, are focused on, you know, how will the firm grow? What is our competitive presence? Um, where can we be you know best serving our clients out there? Um, a lot of times it's the marketers in the firm who understand best the client perspective. And that is, and well, I think we're going to talk about this. That is really where it all needs to start. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I do think it's, it's something that's a real mess because it's, you know, the, it's sort of hand in glove on in terms of having that marketing element in turn with the strategy and actually being able to drive everything forward. So yeah. with that in mind, it'd be great to kind of start to delve, delve a little bit deeper into the strategy. And a couple of times there, you, you described the process arriving at a strategy as that real design process. Um, you know, for you, what does that design mm -hmm. process look like and, and why do you refer to it that way? Yeah, so I refer to it, um, mostly I use the word design because um, because we use a version of design thinking here to build our strategic growth plan. Are you familiar with design thinking, Ali? I'm not, if I'm honest, so I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, let me, let me dive in a little bit. So design thinking, um, I imagine some of the listeners here for, or have some familiarity with it. It's an innovation process or a problem-solving process. Um, but what makes it unique is that it's really anchored around um, human-centered design. And so when I talk about our strategic plan, and we actually here call it a strategic growth plan, um, uh, the reason I use the word design is because we really are designing this for people. And when I say people, I mean people on our team, people um, within our client businesses and, and people within our community. So it's it's people sort of in, in the broadest definition, um, our stakeholders, if you will. So by de following design thinking ideology, we really help ensure that the strategic plan we do create is meaningful and useful to the actual end users, to the people who will use and benefit from it. Um, I'll, I, let me, I'll talk a little bit more. So, so for example, in order to reframe our strategy around what those people need, we take this outside in approach. So rather than having what I've seen happen time and again at different, not just law firms, um, but, but different businesses, is you have this very small group of, of decision makers, people in leadership roles who sit around a table and kind of, you know, um, ideate and come up with a plan for the future. Rather than doing that, um, we, we go to this outside and approach, we spend a lot of time actively listening to our people. Again, that the, the broader sense of people being team, clients, and community, referral partners, um, so on and so forth. In fact, for the plan that we just launched in June of this year, um, we spent Oh, it's probably five months just talking to people. We talked with clients. We talked with those partners of the community and referral partners. We interviewed over 100 of our team members, um, which amounts to about 60% of our firm, um, which is pretty huge, and surveyed even more than that. 
And of course, we, we, you know, we poured over industry trends and client forecasts and um, really did everything we could to understand what our clients and our employees need to do the work that they love. And that's, that's where we started. Then using that um, and coming together, uh, we selected the largest strategic planning committee our firms ever had, including we had attorneys at all levels, including associates. We had members of our professional leadership team, plus our entire management committee um, to, to come around for you know, another five to six months um, to define the vision that we would be following for the next five years. So we take all of that good information that we got from the, the sort of the discovery phase of talking to people, understanding where they're headed, where we need to be headed to be in alignment with them. We get our committee together and then we hold a series of design sessions um, where we're studying all of that and we start really brainstorming, right? So we start putting all the ideas we can think of on the table. So um, I knew that the vision was going to, what, really important to our vision was going to be that we were focusing on, our future would be focused on people's professional growth and their personal well-being. And so I challenged our strategic planning committee to envision a future that serves those two things, our people's professional growth, and again, that includes our clients and our team, and their personal well-being. And then working together as a committee, I came up with, I mean, reams, you know, dozens of ideas, which then we narrowed down and ultimately ended up with this, you know, certainly ambitious but achievable list for our five-year plan. So it really is a design process that we follow. Once we have those ideas narrowed down, the next step is to prototype and to really kind of, you know, put some flesh on the bones, if you will, um, where we create charters for each of our selected initiatives. We really try to flesh it out and say, okay, so let's say we're going to move forward with, with this, you know, idea. What does that look like? What will it take? Who would be involved? How soon could we do it? Um, what kind of costs would be, you know, anticipated? Um, how will we know we're successful? And we get all of these charters built as, like I said, prototypes. Um, and that really, really helps us on the committee understand, you know, get more clarity around prioritization and timing. In fact, we cut some initiatives out after reading through the, the, the charters. We added a couple new initiatives that didn't come into visibility until, until we had these others done. Um, and in the end, we had our plan and we were ready to implement. So um, that was a long-winded answer, but, but that is, that's why I use the word design a lot, because we really do follow that design thinking methodology and, and try to reframe it all around the people who use and benefit from the strategy once it's designed. That was fascinating. And that was certainly an education for me around design thinking, hopefully for, for, for others listening. But look, picking up on that, one of the things I really like there is you're talking about that so much of it is centered around people. And at the end of the day, if we start mm -hmm. to think about law firms, professional services, it is a people business, it's a people game. And when you, it's fascinating how you kind of relate that back to, you know, you're talking about sort of the personal growth and personal well-being there, how that ultimately all filters back into, I guess, the broader picture that you mentioned at the very start, be that adapting or growing or competitive analysis, like positioning, those sorts of things. Um, but yeah. all of that throughout, as you say, the theme is is people. So if you haven't got um, yes. you know, that strategic growth plan that focuses around them, how are you ever going to kind of execute it in any 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 successful way? Um, which, yeah. That's I, right. Even, even, our, even some of our initiatives that are really feel very technical, 
um, in nature, you know, like a, a new process or a new system or something like that. It doesn't feel like people like really come into play. And I can challenge it and I can I could I could show how it's actually even though it's a very operational system we're talking about, it still comes down to people's success and well being again, whether those are our, our internal people or our external stakeholders, um, it still comes down to the people. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. And so, so in your experience, what, what do you think defines an effective strategy? Yeah, I, well, so I think it's, you know, a couple of things I mentioned. Um, I would say that outside in, um, really making sure that we're not getting tunnel vision and just focused on the perspectives of those few around the table. So getting a diverse set of perspectives and inputs from people inside the firm, people outside the firm. Secondly, I would say um, it needs to be ambitious, but still be achievable, right? So if it's not ambitious enough, it won't excite or inspire. But if it's not achievable, it will actually be, you know, even more detrimental because people will feel like, okay, well, you know, like, what are they thinking? That's completely unrealistic. So it's got to excite, inspire, but not overwhelm. And then the third thing that I don't really talk about, but I think it's it's just as important um, in terms of an, having an effective strategy is that the strategy itself needs to be agile. The world changes, right? The market changes. Um, as we learned during our last five-year plan, global pandemics happen. <laughs> and we didn't have a pillar in our plan about what to do in a global pandemic, right? Um, so your strategy has to be able to flex. So the way, I do that um, and have done that with our current plan is we set, you know, we've got the vision and then we set pillars and and I, I intentionally use the word pillar. I mean, they really are just buckets or categories, but I, I intentionally use the word pillar because to me, pillar, it, it symbolizes something very concrete, right? Something that's it's stable and it's going to weather any storm. At the end of the day, no matter what happens, these are the four things in our plan. We have four pillars. These are the four things that we are all about in terms of hitting our vision. The initiatives and the priorities that sort of fall within those pillars though, those can adapt, right? Those can flex, those can adapt to new or unexpected conditions. So if we have one pillar that's all around client service and something you know, drastically changes that would make the initiatives within our client service pillar need to transform, that's okay. But we're still focusing concretely on client service as part of our strategic plan. Um, so, so I think it's those three things: outside in, ambitious, well achievable, and and agile. No, I, I I really like that, and it's really sort of starts to set up everything for actually my following question. You always started answering it there, which I thought thought was wonderful because that agility element I was just thinking about in terms of even the previous answer that you've given around how you'd set up the prototype, you had a couple of initiatives and you're like, actually, oh, we're going to pull one or two of these because they're not going to be achievable or whatever. So already it was kind of filtering into to a lot of what you've been talking about, which I just love. But you know, as, as we say, as you sort of been saying that, like, you know, setting that direction is one thing and you started to allude to it in terms of actually executing on that strategy is a whole different ball game. Um, I know you've mentioned a couple of bits there, but is there anything else that's worth mentioning on how you actually start with implementing that, that strategic plan? Yeah, the design process, even though it, it takes the better part of a year um, here anyways, uh, it is the easy part when compared to implementation. So, and then, you know, that's why so many 
beautifully documented and bound strategic plans just sit on a shelf collecting dust, right? I mean, um, you hear it over and over again. So we've just spent maybe a full year perfecting this plan. Now, you know, you've birthed the baby, you need everyone to love it and adopt it as their own. And that's a whole lot harder. So I think, um, I think there are two extremely important pieces to starting the implementation process. Um, the first is active and visible sponsorship from the executive level of the firm. So this means firm leaders, the most influential people, and sometimes, sometimes the most influential people are not necessarily at the highest level, but firm leaders of the most influence need to be invested. Like they they have to be able to recite the vision. They need the elevator pitch and be able to deliver it, you know, at a moment's notice. What is the plan? Why are we doing it? Where are we going? And then they have to get other people excited and on board and they have to walk the talk. They can't just be a mouthpiece for it. They have to demonstrate demonstrate the change by by being the change. Then the second thing I would say um, most important is frequent and targeted communications. And I know every marketing person uh, listening to this podcast will be probably, you know, nodding their head and saying, amen, sister. So after we rolled out the new plan, um, this this latest one, we rolled it out in our annual meeting um, that we have in, in June and in, in a town hall firm wide. But we didn't stop there. We then had deeper dive discussions with various groups, practice group leaders, for example, um, our associates, our professional staff, um, and, and really work to connect the dots between what's in the plan, why the person I'm talking to should care about the plan, and how that person will be a part of it. So you can't just leave it up for people to, you know, look at a beautiful diagram and go, oh, I totally get it. That means a lot to me. And this is exactly, you know, how I'm going to be part of it. it they, you, you can't force them or expect them to make that leap. Um, so you really need to spell it out for people and spell it out in two-way dialogue. Then once the plan is out in the wild and people are starting to understand it, then you have to show the wins and the progress early on. So it's another form of frequent targeted communications. You can't just do a big reveal of the new plan and then go radio silent for six months. Um, so each time something new is announced or a change is rolled out, we always tie it back to the plan. So it's, you know, hey, we're making this change about X, Y, Z. This, as you might recall, is part of our strategic plan. So we continue to bring it back. Then every few months I send a progress report. So I'm getting ready to send a progress report out to the firm right now saying, here's what's happening with the strategic plan initiatives. And as a reminder, here's how you can get involved. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, my role from going, you know, through design and sort of the launch and now into implementation has transitioned a bit. So it went from facilitating the design of the plan now to being sort of the centralized Kind of operations leader of the plan um and so now i kind of see my charge as equal parts strategic plan champion progress tracker communicator and head nudge <laughs> so you just you can never let up you have to stay positive and you have to be on a constant roadshow for the plan because this is not the thing that the attorneys are thinking about or that the legal assistants are thinking about every day but it is the thing i'm thinking about every day and so you should be but it's, it's an exciting place to be in because it, it is something that is very i suppose tangible when you get those wins that you talk about and actually i love those two points you know the whole active 
um and you know and, and visible sponsorship from from those at the top but then that whole targeted and frequent comms is, is so important and actually it ties into what you just said there which I, I know you've mentioned it and you mentioned it when we previously spoke about like being that head nudge which, which <laughs> makes off. but I imagine if you say it's that thing that's always at the fore, forefront of your mind so you've got to be helping to drive, drive that forward but when you think about that you know do you think you could maybe just tell us a little bit more about that in terms of being the head nudge but also I had <laughs> My honorary that, title, head actually, nudge. Honorary, yeah, yeah, the official, yeah. <laughs> official team title of head nudge. Um, and if yeah. you share a bit more around that, but also how you're keeping those busy lawyers engaged. You know, you, I, I guess one of those things as you say is is sharing those wins. You know, how you're already yeah. like explaining how they fit into the picture. But yeah, we'd love to understand any more of it. Right, right. Come to mind. Yeah, yeah. So the the story, the backstory is um, my my boss, who's the managing partner, told everyone on our strategic planning committee that she was appointing me head nudge back when we um, each back when each of our committee members were responsible for for building the charters out. Right. So there's a lot of work that everybody was taking on individually. Um, but, you know, it, it was it, we all laughed at the time, but it was actually really, really helpful for her to say it out loud like that. Um, and so this is a tip that I that I would share um, is getting getting that, you know, highest level executive sponsor to anoint you in front of everyone, um, basically to permit you and expect you to bug people. Right. So she basically took ownership of of my pestering of people. And, and, and from that point, I didn't have to feel like I was just bugging people because of, you know, because on my own account or because I, I felt like I wanted to, she made it clear that I'm bugging people because it's really important we get this done for the firm. Um, so so that was just, I mean, it was simple, but it, it actually ended up being really helpful. It, fortunately, our people really have been engaged and I really haven't needed to nudge nearly as much as we thought I would. So that's that's the good news. But, you know, Ali, it's like, it's like with anything in a law firm. When you have busy lawyers involved in non-billable initiatives, you just you have to be mindful of their time, right? Don't waste it. Show that when you're asking for their time, it's being put to good use. Um, be supportive with some of the administrative overhead. So if you've got somebody who's a great strategic thinker, put them at, you know, use them at the, the highest and best, right? If if building a spreadsheet is not their highest and best, don't expect them to do it. Either I'll do it myself or I'll find somebody to do it. But I'm not going to ask them to do tasks that as individuals, I mean, I might have another attorney who loves doing spreadsheets, but as individuals, I'm going to make sure I'm using their time um, towards their highest and best use as it as it relates to the strategic plan. And then, as you pointed out, showing them that their efforts are really leading to things that they can be proud of. So showing the wins, showing the successes, sharing the um, the positive feedback and reactions, so on and so forth. Yeah, it makes a lot, lot of sense. I mean, that's that's where people then start to really buy into it. Is that is that kind of feedback loop, isn't it? Understanding the time and effort mm-hmm. they put in, what that's ultimately achieved. But yeah, around the head nudge, I, I love that. I think uh, we should all go away and anoint a head nudge for um, anything that we actually <laughs> have achieved. And you know, you heard it here first for, for, for yourself, really. Right. Very important. It's very very important. Um, now coming coming kind of almost full circle from from some of the stuff that you mentioned at the start. You know, when you're a consultant. Um, you know, with growth play, you got to sort of see everything right through to the point of basically execution and then never really got to see anything sink further. I mean, it'd be really interesting to understand now that you've been through the cycle um, at much, you know, what for you or how can you 
potentially, I suppose, tell if you've been successful with that strategic plan? Um, is it something that's very much, can it, is it, are there anecdotal examples or is it something that's very objective in terms of numbers? It'd be, be really interesting to understand that. I, you know, I, in my opinion, one of the very hardest things to capture um, when working in law firm strategic plans compared to corporate strategic plans are those quantitative, objective metrics and KPIs. Um, of course, the more you have them in your plan, the easier it is to to show and prove success. I mean, it's it makes it super easy, right, to be able to say, well, we said we were going to grow by this percentage or we were going to increase this, you know, this component by X that. Um, it's just a lot harder, you know, I'm sure some firms have much, you know, more robust data systems than than um, us midsize, but uh, we just don't have a lot of that. Um, and, you know, lawyers by their very nature, I will say, are reluctant to put absolutes in writing. So even if we have access to the data, there is some reluctance, I think, to to put out there, we're going to do, you know, absolutely this by then. So um, there are a few things that we can readily mark as achieved or not achieved, you know, that are very much more sort of black and white, cut and dry. Uh, but we also do rely a lot more on anecdotal and qualitative evidence, right? So, um, for example, those same stakeholder interviews and surveys that we do when we're getting ready to design a new plan, we continue those um, throughout the implementation of the plan. Ours is a five-year plan, so we will annually um, conduct further client interviews, further stakeholder interviews, um, and surveys to just to sort of check the pulse on whether progress is being made in meaningful ways um, and people are perceiving it. Makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think uh, having to be able to keep, ultimately keeping yourself accountable throughout it is probably the mm -hmm. best that you can do rather than, as you say, let, letting it all drift. And Again, it makes sense as to why you'd actually appoint a chief strategy officer and have somebody who is anointed, you know, that sole focus of it, because otherwise these sort of things do, do sadly end up drifting. But thank you for sharing. It's, it's really, really useful. Yeah. Um, and then finally, I can't believe it, we're on, on to kind of the final part of this. Um, <laughs> as we always do as a sort of tradition um, on the CMO series, it'd be, be great to understand um, what one piece of advice um, you'd have for those who are trying to improve the way that their firm designs and therefore executes their strategy. There's, you know, I think there are many nuggets that I've learned and many more that I'm sure I will learn. Um, but but the one I, I will go to is help the lawyers in your firm approach the process with a growth mindset. So help them do create an environment where they can have an open mind, mm. play to win and take risks. And that's a bigger ask than some might realize. You know, the legal profession is rooted in precedent, right? <laughs> Law firms notoriously slow to innovate. They 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 don't want to be first at anything. Um, and so we really, you know, my advice is to again create the conditions, give people the encouragement and safety. Um, to come at your plan from a pace uh, from a place of possibility, asking really what if and not just continuing to do things the way they've always been done. The minute I hear you know, somebody says an idea and the minute I hear somebody else retort with, we tried that before and it didn't work. I immediately ask, when was that? When was that that we tried that before? And honestly, more often than not, the, the response is, oh, it was over 10 years ago, right? And so for me, 10 years ago is a really long time ago. It's like, it, it, you know, 
we can we can try that again but but for some they think if it was ever tried before um then you know there's no statute of limitations on it so um really really encourage that growth mindset that that from a place of possibility and why versus you know no of course now what a wonder a wonderful uh closing remark and piece of advice i mean essentially enable that that growth mindset that's going to disrupt mm -hmm. status quo which i really yeah. really um so as is tradition we have a little bit of a quick fire round just to round things off um a little bit of fun uh just gonna rattle through those if that's okay with you of course let's Perfect. hear it brilliant so um first off what's your favorite business and non-business book there are several there are several but uh so quick fire so today i will choose shanghai girls by lisa c as my favorite novel and when by daniel pink for my business book although my favorite title for a business book goes to david maester's strategy and the fat smoker <laughs> That's check great. it out my, my favorite business <laughs> book title is never eat alone and well worth listen uh well worth the read if you haven't yep. um it's a good one it is a very good one um what's your what was your first job okay my very very first job other than babysitting was um sweeping up hair and managing the appointment book for the neighborhood hair salon which was a total dream job for a teenager because i got free haircuts and blowouts anytime i wanted i'd say that the absolute dream um so what makes you happy <laughs> at work <laughs> happy at work um i like helping people connect dots i know i said that a couple of times but i really do that's that's what you know that's where i get my kicks helping people connect those dots take risks think outside of the box it makes me happy when somebody steps into my office and wants to bounce ideas around or stop and tell me about you know some accomplishment they've had or they just want to kind of have a, somebody to hear them out about things that, that makes me happy i love that i love that um what are you listening to at the moment it could be a podcast music audiobook um for music my go-to is coffee house on sirius xm and i am listening right now to atomic habits by james clear i also recommend that fantastic I've never that. um finally what is your favorite place to visit and why anywhere in europe i have always loved it and i was really fortunate to study abroad twice in france once as an undergrad and again in business school um, I, I'd say I'm a lifelong student of different cultures and languages, and as you well know, Europe is rich with them. So that is, um, that's a favorite spot. Love that, love that. Well, thank you very much. Wonderful, excellent. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you. Bri, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm not gonna lie, uh, various people I've spoken to prior to this have been very excited for this to be uh, released. So hopefully, uh, for those listening, um, it hasn't disappointed, it certainly hasn't disappointed me. It's been absolutely fascinating. So much uh, wonderful insight there. So thanks so much for making the time for it. Of course, and, and, and anyone who is listening who wants to have more of a conversation about it, um, I, I would be happy to make myself available for that. It's incredibly kind of you.